even if you just are interested in Bitcoin because the number is going up or because there it's there in ETF now, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter because somehow you're going to learn about Bitcoin, whether mm-hmm. you like it or not. And you're going to watch the What Is Money show and other mm-hmm. podcasts and read all the books about it mm-hmm. eventually. So the only be- the only thing that can happen is that you understand money better. And politicians and governments that understand money better will be able to do their job far better. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Samson Mao, welcome back to the What Is Money show. It's good to be back, Robert. Great to have you on again. I think last time we spoke was about mid last year in person in Miami, was it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's time is flying by. Here we sit seven, six, seven months later. Um this time doing it by Zoom. Just by way of quick reintroduction, you are the founder of GN3, which is a Bitcoin tech company focused on accelerating Bitcoin adoption around the world. Um, and today we're going to talk about a number of things, I guess, really just looking at Bitcoin adoption, some design principles in regard to Bitcoin wallets, and then looking at some Bitcoin layer two um, things. And then also we'll talk a little bit about Bitcoin ETFs and, and nation state adoption again. Uh, so maybe we could start with onboarding the global South to Bitcoin. This seems to be the big target for a lot of people. Uh, the, the global North is spoiled with 
semi-functional banking infrastructure and services, whereas the global south is not. So there seems to be a lot more demand for something like Bitcoin there. Um, what are your current views on the progress of Bitcoin adoption in the global south? Yeah, so the global south is uh, one of our key focuses in both our top level, like bottom, uh, top down engagement, working with governments but also supporting grassroots initiatives and getting people to use Bitcoin more. So Aqua, the wallet we just released, it's a, it's a Bitcoin liquid and lightning wallet. It, it is meant to empower those grassroots initiatives and potentially be used by governments as well if they wanted to white label and rebrand it as their own. But the idea is that we can create a wallet that will help the Global South get into Bitcoin. Because right now, a lot of people in the Global South are still very dependent on and seeking stable coins or digital dollars as they call them in Latin America. And the beautiful thing about Aqua is that we are a sidechain wallet. So we have liquid support and Tether is issued natively in liquid. But there hasn't been a Bitcoin wallet that has really cracked that market yet of getting people to use liquid Tether. But we think Aqua could be that wallet and it could be a tool for us to not only get them off of uh, altcoin chains into Liquid, but get them from USDT into Bitcoin. So they have yeah. this innate demand for dollars already. And when they're using things like uh, altcoin wallets that have Tron, uh, have Tether, like Tron wallets and um, Ethereum wallets, they don't really care too much about that stuff, but they do want the dollars. And for Aqua, we show them at the top of the wallet, the Bitcoin price, and we say, Bitcoin is your savings account. And then, you know, digital dollars is your spending account or one mm -hmm. of the spending accounts, mm -hmm. the other being like lightning and liquid. So by this, we hope to get them to use Tether on liquid and then see the benefits of saving in Bitcoin as they keep seeing that Bitcoin price at the top of the app. And there's no altcoins to pollute the mindset. So do you think this contributes to Bitcoin adoption in the global South just by way of simplifying how it's presented? You're saying like here's a you have a savings account versus a checking account. Yeah, I think Michael Saylor had said something along those lines at one of his talks at a conference. He's saying, "I just want a Bitcoin wallet that has a checking and a spending account," and this is really that. And we've been talking to a lot of people even before we launched, and we had the same validation that it needs to be super simple for people to uh, to use it. And positioning Bitcoin as that savings tech. And layer two and tether is spending tech, I think is the best way to go about that because we can talk all day long about lightning side chains and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, your average person just wants to not have their money be stolen from them through debasement and inflation. So they're, they're trying to hedge in the best way that they know how. And for now, a lot of that is just using tether and USDT. Yeah, it makes sense. Liquid, so liquid tether, this is a Bitcoin based coin that is stable to USD. Is that what that is? Yeah. So tether is the largest stable coin issuer in the world right now. I think they're at 95 billion AUM mm -hmm. and um, they're well over one to one reserves. I think they have another 3 billion in Bitcoin just backing it up outside of their 100% reserves. So this is really the dominant stablecoin. If you go and travel around the world, um, I've been to uh, Turkey and Latin America, almost everybody uses USDT or Tether. Mm -hmm. And 
unfortunately for Bitcoiners, they're using Tether on altcoin chains like uh, Tron and Ethereum. And we can get them to use Tether on Liquid. And fortunately, it is natively issued in Liquid. Uh, Bitcoin X, Tether, these guys are members of the Liquid Federation. So Tether is there. So we don't need them to, we don't need to create some bridge to, uh, to Liquid Tether. It's just natively on the Liquid chain. Uh, and to spend Tether, you just need Liquid Bitcoin to pay for transaction fees. So you don't need to buy Tron and Ethereum to pay for the gas or whatever. Uh, and Aqua is going to take that a step further and allow users to pay for Tether transactions in Tether itself using uh, atomic swaps. So if you're just like installing a new wallet and um, I send you 100 USDT, you don't need to go and buy some other asset to pay for gas. You just pay right. for sending it to you know, your buddy with mm -hmm. the USDT that I just sent you. And I think that simplifies a lot of that flow and complexity for people. And would this, if US, or I'm sorry, Tether, if, you, if Tether moved off of Ether and Tron and these other chains and was exclusively on Bitcoin, would this drive demand for Bitcoin block space, actually, just so people could fund those transactions? Or how does that work? So Liquid is a side chain. It is its own blockchain and okay. it has one minute block times, but it is anchored to Bitcoin because Liquid doesn't have a, a token. You peg in Bitcoin to Liquid, which means you lock it up on the main chain and you move it to Liquid. So the one-to-one -one relationship is established through that peg and you cannot create more Liquid Bitcoin than Bitcoin exists in the world today. Um, but in terms of blocks and um, that stuff, that's all separate on the Liquid chain. And that's also what gives it more scalability too, yeah. because you're not dependent on the main chain except for pegging in Bitcoin into the sidechain and pegging it out of the sidechain back to main chain. Got it. But so the more liquid Bitcoin or Tether exists in the sidechain, the more reservation demand there is for Bitcoin to create those assets, right? Yeah. Well, I think liquid Tether will drive demand for Bitcoin indirectly yeah. because you know, people in the Bitcoin ecosystem tend to stay in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Uh -huh. It's just like, you know, if you're shitcoining, you don't go to Bitcoin and go back to shitcoining. Yeah. You kind of right, right, leave right. that behind and you, you learn from your mistakes. So yeah. it's a good way to get people off of Tron and Ethereum because when you use those altcoin wallets, they're always telling you to buy some new altcoin, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like a, a platform for launching new Casino. stuff. Casino, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I was... The reason I was asking is because I am curious how Bitcoiners dropped the ball on this. How did Tron and Ethereum get there before Bitcoiners? Uh, this seems like a lot of native demand for Bitcoin that we we lost out on, basically, uh, yeah. because Tron and Ethereum got there first with, with USD stablecoin. Well, I think from a philo philosophical standpoint, a lot of Bitcoiners still don't like the concept of a, a stablecoin. Mm. And they're inherently against using anything other than Bitcoin itself. Mm -hmm. But the reality is you have to meet people where they are. And in the global South, they don't have the luxury of weathering volatility like you or sure. I can. Right. We also have bank accounts too, right? And we have yeah. debit cards, credit cards. A lot of people don't have that. Yeah. And asking some merchant in I don't know, Venezuela to accept that Bitcoin's going to dip and that's it. Yeah. It's kind of difficult. They're more concerned about preventing loss of money 
period. Yeah. From the Bolivar to dollars. And that is their savings account is dollars. To them, the dollar is like Bitcoin for us. It's like sure. uh, a life raft in the yeah. ocean. So you have to kind of go to them and accept that they want dollars. And the best dollar that they can get right now is USDT. Yeah. So if you're unwilling to meet them there, it's not reasonable to assume that they're willing to meet you here and be Bitcoin only and live only on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, people want short run purchasing power stability in their checking account, obviously. That's how, you know, prices are consistent month to month. <laughs> but you also want some long run purchasing power stability in your savings. You don't want it to deteriorate. So it seems natural there would be demand for USD or USDT and BTC. So yeah, yeah. just give people what they want, basically. And that's not, that doesn't seem like a bad thing either, even philosophically, because if, especially if this is a liquid tether, the stable coins being built on Bitcoin, it's actually increasing reservation demand for Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So it's serving Bitcoin's long-term interest, even though it's satisfying people's short-run demand for purchasing power stability. Yeah, and I think people are coming around. There are more and more companies building on Liquid and integrating Liquid USDT into their offerings. So HODL HODL was one of the first. And I think uh, Debify, one of their uh, spin-off companies doing institutional lending, is going to be relying heavily on Liquid USDT. Uh, Peach Bitcoin, uh, peer-to-peer trading, they're integrating USDT on Liquid as well. So I think we're catching up to where we need to be in terms of thinking about how these things work uh, related to one another and how much utility there is for someone in the global south. But it's taken us some time and we did lose some headway to the altcoins that embraced it instantly. And that's really where they got their their footing, right? They used USDT and other stable coins in DeFi. And eventually that bled into real world use cases where people are just using it as a payment or savings mechanism. Do you think the the network effects for something like USDT on Tron or Ethereum, are they so firmly established that they'll be difficult to disrupt by doing it on Bitcoin? Or are there certain, I don't know, uh, maybe cost advantages that you think Bitcoin, a stable coin built on Bitcoin could be disruptive to ones on Tron and Ethereum? I don't think it is undisruptible. If you look at it, Tron just came out of nowhere and took most of the stablecoin volume from Ethereum and uh-huh. with good reason because transactions on Ethereum can be 10, 13, $20, depending on the fees and congestion at that time. And Tron was able to bypass that. Most Tron wallets charge a dollar for a, um, uh, USD trend, USDT transaction and on liquid that is, uh, about 19 cents right now. And we have plans to decrease that even further. So we should be able to compete on price, but also on uh, privacy and confidentiality because Liquid has confidential transactions, which Tron doesn't have. Mm. Liquid is um, UTXO based, whereas Tron is account based. So it's really bad for privacy, especially if you're at risk because you're a dissident or a political activist where someone could see every single transaction you've done with everyone else purely in plain sight. Mm. So I think there are benefits to Liquid, but I think for us as Gen3, when we push Aqua, our main point will be competing on those fees. And we've already started running some ads in LATAM comparing the cost to transact uh, Liquid, Tron, and Ethereum. So it just shows it's much cheaper. But I can segue into a bit more about what we're going to do to uh, boost Liquid scalability too. 
Yeah. Um, so there is this project underway. It's called uh, Operation Tsunami, and it's a number of different initiatives. But the key is to decrease the cost of a liquid transaction massively. Um, there's one proposal out there that's probably going to be implemented relatively quickly, which will allow fees below a certain fee rate to be in to to be sent to the mempool. And then there is another proposal to decrease the uh, the weight of confidential transactions, bringing it to meet the weight of a non-confidential transaction. And then those two transaction types will be the same price. So basically liquid transactions are going to drop by a factor of 10. So from 19 cents now or 18 cents now to 1.8 or 1.9 cents and potentially even lower than that. And there's also initiatives to uh, increase uh, uh, conf decrease confirmation times too. So all these things put together should put Liquid in a very good position to start taking that market share away from the, the altcoin tether uh, rails. So yeah, you mentioned the one design principle is like, just make it simple. You have savings and checking basically in the wallet. What okay. other principles are you, do you think are relevant for an effective Bitcoin wallet? Right. So I think a big problem that Bitcoin wallets have had in the past is that they're aiming to be the most advanced Bitcoin wallet. But the most advanced Bitcoin wallet for you or I is not necessarily the most usable wallet for someone in, in the global south, as an yeah. example. Mm -hmm. So we might have a lot of functionality. Like There are things that Aqua will just never do because it's not within our focus. So we're very clear that it is for the global south and it is to bring utility to them, letting them do things like pay bills, have fiat on and off ramps. So we've had people ask us, well, can I connect a hardware wallet to Aqua? Maybe on the desktop version, we'll see. But uh, other requests are like, can you integrate Noster or can you uh, let me connect to my own Lightning node? And those are things that we just don't see us ourselves doing anytime uh. soon because that doesn't help the average guy. Like, we're, We don't want to cater to the Bitcoiners that have this already. There are a lot of great Bitcoin wallets that will do these things and are good for power users. But that's not what we want. We want mm -hmm. to onboard the next billion people with Aqua. And that means we have to focus on a different set of problems and a different UX where it's much more streamlined and simplified. So if you look at some offerings like um, BitKey from Block or um, Square, the, it is a hardware wallet without a screen and it's a part of a two of three quorum. So you get a key when you set it up I think uh, block gets two somehow and then, or you get two and block gets one. But this is actually something that has already existed in the, the suite of Blockstream tech with the uh, Blockstream Green and potentially with Jade. But the direction there is more for powered users. So you can do a lot more there. But the, the BitKey offering really locks you into this very simple thing where you just have a uh, 203 multisig and it's super simple and easy to use, but you can't do much else with it. And I think this is the kind of design thinking that Bitcoin wallets have to start getting into uh, if they want to onboard the next billion users, because the next billion users are not going to be super tech savvy and uh, want to do all the, the fancy stuff that we may want to do. It's almost like, sort of like Bitcoin itself, right? It's kind of aired down and what it actually does you know, it's 10 minute block times, 21 million hard cap. 
doesn't give you a lot of feature set necessarily, but with that lack of feature set comes this simplicity of use. Okay. Is that some sort of trying to incorporate that principle, I guess, but from a design standpoint rather than a functionality standpoint? Yeah, I think so. It's sort of like what Apple did when they first had their Apple stores. It's changed a little bit now. They have a lot more mm-hmm. stuff. But back in the day, if you remember when Apple stores first came out, they had maybe two models of iPhones and mm-hmm. an iPad. And that's your choice. You don't yep. really need to spend a lot of time thinking about what I want. Or maybe a, a Mac, uh, like a MacBook or something. Yeah. But over time, that offering is broadened. But still, I would say that Apple ecosystem is still very limited and it doesn't require a huge cognitive load to make a decision of what you want to do. Mm. Whereas if you go to Android, you have all these different Android devices. Right. And there's a lot of power customizability there. You can install graphene and do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. But it's also a bit overwhelming of how do I choose? And it's, yeah. it's sort of like back in the day before smartphones came out, you know, when we had Walkmans and stuff like that, there's just so many different things. Like how do you choose a good Walkman? or a good portable CD player. Yeah. There's just an overwhelming amount of variables you can take into consideration and choose. And narrowing that that design window and saying we're solving a very specific problem really helps, I think, to focus and decide what you want to do with that product. Uh, so there is a trade-off perhaps between product simplicity and product configurability. Something like that, because I'm thinking Apple, at least historically, tended to be a lot more simple, yeah, sort of out of the box, intuitive, whereas Android is much more customizable, less of a walled garden, right? You you can basically tweak anything you want. So then is Aqua aiming at being, in this sort of analogy, the Apple of Bitcoin wallets? I would say so. We're very focused on what we want to offer, and we have our our design thinking about how we get there. And it's really just about keeping it very simple for the end user, abstracting away complexity. Like, for example, the the Layer 2 wallet. It is technically a liquid wallet that has lightning rails that allow you to send and receive on lightning. But we just call it a Layer 2 wallet because the more, the better way would have been to, you know, say this is a lightning and liquid wallet and explain to them exactly how it works. But I think as... Bitcoin tech evolves, we're going to end up abstracting away even more of this stuff. So potentially down the road, on-chain wallet and layer two wallet will just become one singular thing that deals with all of that complexity in and of itself. But for now, we decided to still keep that separation there because I don't think we're quite ready yet to abstract that much away right now. But I think Moon Wallet tried to do that in the past. But the problem is, you know, they're doing submarine swaps too with Lightning. But when the main chain fees spike, then it's not really usable. Yeah, And it works for us because we're using liquid as that middle layer to bounce down on and then come back to lightning. Gotcha. So maybe in the distant future, then if it's all Bitcoin, layer two would be your checking and layer one would be your savings. Yeah, or it's just Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin wallet just decides which route to use based on what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. But some of your, well, okay, I guess we're, we're presupposing like a hot wallet in all of this, right? Because that's what, yeah. okay, that's okay. That's what I was thinking of. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, and one. 
36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Okay, you mentioned something there that we should talk about. We call these Lightning Network and Liquid Sidechain. Currently, many of us call these Bitcoin Layer 2 protocols. You mentioned, however, there are some new Bitcoiners that refer to these differently. How do we properly enumerate the Bitcoin protocol layers? Is this something we can only do in retrospect? And if so, why? Yeah, I believe we can really only do it in retrospect because everything is still evolving very rapidly now. And it's going to be hard for us to very clearly define what is a layer, layer well, layer two and layer three and four, um, because all of the tech is still evolving at the same time. So there was a point in which uh, we made this diagram at Blockstream, and we said Liquid is layer one point five, and this was after we found that we could create a Lightning network on top of Liquid, and I think that still might be done. And in that case, then it's a one point five because you have layer two lightning on Bitcoin and layer two on liquid. But the reality is we've been calling liquid a layer two since inception, like in 2015 and 16. But there's people now trying to change the definition, say it's not a layer two um, because it's it's a federation. But we don't really know yet. And I think it goes to that point that you brought up. In retrospect, in 20 years, maybe it'll be very clear. But right now, everything is evolving so fast and so much that it's going to be hard for us to clearly say what is a layer two and a three. It could be that, you know, Chalmian and Mints and Fediments and Liquid are layer two and Lightning is layer three. So it's it's going to be challenging to fully flesh this out anytime soon, but in 10, 20 years, it'll be easy. Do side chains even qualify as a higher layer protocol or are they something just structurally different? Well, it is a separate blockchain so yeah. you could say it you know a layer a layer doesn't have a chain but yeah. i think it it really depends on what we end up quantifying it as because when the concept of side chains was first pushed out there and people were talking about it uh, they were calling it a layer two and this was before lightning even existed in production mm-hmm. it was just a, a concept being fleshed out as well so it really just depends on what people end up calling it, right? It, it could be a layer two, but right. you could say anything with a chain is a layer one. Mm. That's, yeah, it gets tricky. And I, I guess these are, this whole discussion is different than the layers we, the protocol layers we associate with the internet, right? These are just well, different things. That's a good point. The internet layering system is not universally agreed upon too. I think there is universal agreement that you have the physical 
data layer, a physical yep. layer and the data layer. And then somewhere up here, you have the application layer, Yeah. but those middle layers are not unified. If you go and search it, there's people doing different diagrams with different numbers of layers and different sequences mm -hmm. of the layers. So it's not uh, something that is that important after all, because the thing just has to work. It, yeah. it doesn't really matter what we enumerate each layer to be at the end right. of the day. Yeah. The whole thing is an organic process and they, I guess they do become ossified over time, right? Like we, there's pretty strong consensus on something like HTTP, although I guess there's a couple of different kinds of HTTP, right? There's uh -huh. the one with us and not with us. So. Yeah. But I've also seen HTTP lower down in the layer stack and then higher oh, you up mean in where the layer stack. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that, I guess it depends on what perspective of the flow you're looking at, right? HTTP yeah. might be higher or lower depending on which path you're looking at what what causes it to change positions in this the stratification just some guy's decision just an opinion <laughs> just okay. here and or here so right. it really is subjective in some ways okay but bitcoin would certainly be the bottom layer of whatever we're talking about here and then maybe a side chain is a layer two or maybe a side chain can't be a layer two because it has a chain and then if so depending on that then Lightning is a layer two or a layer three. But all, again, all these things just sort of come out in the wash in, a, in the rear view mirror, so to speak. So does it really, is it even yeah. useful to talk about them, to try to enumerate them at this point? Or is this just kind I of... I mean, for us, we just call it a layer two because we don't really want to invest our time in debating people to well, figure out what is the best definition. Because right. there is so much for us to accomplish in the near term because we have that mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization and Bitcoin mm -hmm. adoption, our focus is to get the wallet out there and make the best wallet possible for people to use in their daily lives. And that discussion on the internet can keep on going while we go and right. get the work done. Makes sense. So what about, I mean, I guess the common theme here though is that these, we'll just call them higher layers for right now for simplicity's sake. These higher layer Bitcoin protocols are trading off some degree of trust lessness or trust minimization for scalability, mm -hmm. right? So Bitcoin, you know, notoriously slow and cumbersome, right? Can't do many transactions per second on the main chain, but that's not, that's a feature, not a bug because that's what main, helps it maintain its, its security, trust minimization, its integrity to its supply cap, et cetera. Yeah. And the, but obviously if you want to increase transaction throughput, you need to trade off some of that trustlessness to pick up scalability. What are, and the the extreme end of that discussion would be like the one node network that we call central banking, right? Where you just completely trust the central bank. There's zero verification occurring and it's really fast system because you only have to update one ledger, uh, whereas Bitcoin has to update ledgers all over the world. Um, what about Betty Mint and Chomian Mints? Where do they fit into this, into the context of this discussion? Right. So... A Fediman is largely a liquid federation, just custom made. So you can choose a few friends and create a Fediman. Um, a Chomian Mint, right now, at least in the current form, is centralized. So it's one server that someone's operating somewhere and is that sim single point of failure still. And there is some risk too about you know, legal action being taken against that. But mm -hmm. Like all of these things still have some trust trade-off, right? So 
and, and I guess functionality trade-offs too, because if you compare a fediment and liquid, liquid is just a really robust fediment made up of Bitcoin exchanges and businesses, right? Like Hodl Hodl, Bull Bitcoin, Bitfinex, uh, Gen3, Peach Bitcoin. There's so many new federation members now, but it's just these business Bitcoin businesses that you use their services running a federation. A fediment is just more custom. And I think the the trade-off there in terms of trust is, you know, it's easier for you to trust your friends that they're not going to screw you over and run away with your money. And I think people have this challenge of understanding that it's probably better to trust the Bitcoin businesses that you use in your daily lives too. And you're already using their services. So the only difference there being uptime, like are you, you and your five friends going to be able to maintain 100% uptime and have backups and operate this at the same level as a Bitcoin exchange would? And do you have data center connectivity, et cetera? So that's really the main difference. But the fundamental part of it is that there's still federations, just different. One is really? federation of businesses. One is a federation of your friends. So trade-offs, different benefits and downsides, but largely the same thing. Chomi and Mints, I think, are different. Like, I, I, I think it's still largely a risky thing because it's one service operated by one entity, unless they federate too, but then, then you just go back to federation in, in some sorts. But yeah, it, there's different benefits of all these different techs. Do you think, do you have a strong opinion about which way Bitcoin will scale at this point? Is it going to be through fediments or combination? Like how do you, which way do you see things going? So there was an article about, um, Lightning Scalability, uh, written by Ben Carmen, And he largely came to the conclusion that Lightning doesn't work well with the main chain because there are too many dependencies. Channel open, opening, closing, uh, rebalancing, all that stuff doesn't really work well, despite too, all the technology Too many touch points that. with the main chain? Is that what it means? Well, every touch point with the main chain incurs a main chain cost, which you're right. trying to avoid with Lightning. Right. Got it. So his conclusion was, it would be brilliant if there was some middle layer you can come down to from Lightning and bounce back up for any purpose. And he concluded that uh, his wallet, Mutiny, will use um, Fediments. But I think another large chunk of Bitcoiners are going more towards Liquid as that middle interim layer between Lightning and main chain. So people are going to choose the tech that they think is best and we kind of get to see it play out in real time of how well it performs. So there's going to be people that go into the liquid camp and some people that go into the Fediman camp and there's not necessarily a right or wrong path. Every path that we take that delivers Bitcoin to people at the end of the day is a good path. And maybe in 10 years, 20 years time, all of this stuff is obsolete and there's something better that can perform that same function. But the goal is the same, to get people to be able to use Bitcoin freely and to accept Bitcoin freely. Do you think that these protocol layer battles will conclude in like a winner take all dynamic or winner take most as like we saw with internet protocols or do you think we'll have multiple layer twos, layer threes, etc.? It's hard to say. Like the lightning model, uh, sorry, the sidechain model is very scalable and you can make like your own sidechain and your own federation. 
And we just haven't seen a lot of people do that yet. Maybe Fediment is the first way towards that, but we'll, we'll see. I don't think it's necessarily a winner take all, but more about everybody evolving over time and using the better mechanism or technology to support that, the Bitcoin scaling initiative. Interesting. Okay. Um, let's talk about Bitcoin ETFs. So this has been the big hurrah recently in, in Bitcoin news. Um, a lot of people celebrating, I think 11 Bitcoin ETFs were approved in the United States. Okay. Um, obviously there was a big run up in price leading up to this announcement, but it was a classic buy the rumor, sell the news event. It appears because the price has sort of been sideways to down since the launch of the ETFs. Um, let's start with, before we talk about price, you mentioned when we were preparing offline that these ETFs signal, in your mind, a step change for what money needs to be. What do you mean by that? Right. So my post about a step change is motivated by people talking about diminishing returns of Bitcoin. So people are theorizing that you know, each cycle that Bitcoin has, the, the highs are not as high from where it first ran up from. So I think they're dismissing the possibility that Bitcoin can go to a million or 500,000 even because every cycle has diminishing returns. And my point that I'm trying to illustrate with the, the step change concept is that we're not getting a marginally better dollar or a marginally better gold. Bitcoin is a thousand times, if not infinitely better than either of those things because of all the properties it has, the permissionlessness, the immutability, and the fact that it is dematerialized. It doesn't have a physical form. And with all of that, it comes to a step change, which is a radical change. If you can imagine like walking up a st stairs, it's not a gradual sloping curve mm. to the next, next stair. All right. It is a big change like this that goes up and then it doesn't yes. go back down, right? And examples of that are, you know, horses and cars, right? Yes. We don't, we, we, there's no diminishing returns of having cars. It's just, we all use cars now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like we use a car on Monday to Friday and we go back to horses on Saturday and Sunday, maybe right. for fun, but right. not okay. for any pragmatic reason at yeah. all. So there's no one-to-one -one example, but the the change is a very significant change and when you have a step change the, the returns don't diminish so that's really the point that everything has changed right now the money is no longer bound to the same constraints as we've had in the past if you look at the definition between money and currency and you try to apply bitcoin to it well money is both uh, bitcoin is both money and currency <laughs> so I've seen like these charts that outline money on one column and then currency on another column. Yeah. And it's basically saying money is the number, is the concept. The currency is the thing that you move around, whether it's a plastic right. card or coinage right. or bills. Right, right, right. Well, it's one and the same now. And right. that's a, a really poignant example of that step change that yeah. this previous outdated mode of thinking about the relationship between money and currency is no longer relevant. And yes. people have yet to really figure this out and I, I don't even think they fully figured out that the halving is coming and this is why the price is uh, depressed right now. Yes. 
that's a great point, actually. I've never framed it that way, but the dollar is definitely getting worse every single day. Hey. Right, every new dollar that's printed, you're just debasing the purchasing power of savers and you're misallocating that capital through wherever the government chooses to spend it. Gold is basically the same, right? It doesn't ever change. It's just gold. It's just the shiny, dumb rock sits in a vault, uh, performs the function of scarcity really well. So it's good for wealth preservation, but not portable. It's not getting any more portable. In fact, that's why we introduce currency, right? To make gold more portable. Yep. But Bitcoin gets better every single day, right? It's like all the brightest minds in the world working on this thing, basically 24 by 7, if you look at it in aggregate. Um, yeah, it seems like a pretty strong intuition of which one is going to outcompete which. Um, and the notion of step change is interesting. And I, I did this presentation a long time ago. When I first got into Bitcoin, 2017, and I was descri- I was using the term... In biology, they call this a punctuated equilibrium, where there's a sudden jump. You know, we always think of evolution as this slow, gradual process, but if you actually look at the the evolutionary record, sometimes there's these huge jumps in speciation or adaptation that, you know, like the species does nothing for a long time, then all of a sudden it'll jump. And it seems like Bitcoin is like that, right? It's it's a brand new thing, a brand new form of money, maybe the first pure form of money we've ever had. Uh, arguably, and then it's getting better every day, as as we just said. And it also, yeah, because gold was basically limited in terms of its portability, we had to delaminate the concept of currency from money. So you needed a money that was, you know, store value, bearer asset, final extinguisher of debt, but it didn't move around because it was physical or didn't move around easily. So you needed a application, a derivative application on that called currency that would allow it to be a medium of exchange and a unit of account. But with Bitcoin, you just collapse the whole thing, right? You have highly portable, non-physical monetary good that it's also fixed in supply. So it holds really good holding value across time and moving it across space. And that's yeah, why I think, I think it's so disruptive to our idea of money. We, I think we talked about this either in Miami or another show, but the... The, the problem with most money is that we have to anchor it to something physical. And that anchoring is essentially an attack vector. And right. not even physical. It could be anchored to something... Um, requires trust. Yeah, it's something trust requiring. It, even sure. a central bank database, where most money actually lives right now, is a physical anchoring that you know someone has control of. Right, So it is that attack vector. And by removing that connection between money and physicality, you get the most pure form of money because it can be self-custodied, right? It's right. your own. Just like your time is your own, your money is your own. Uh-huh. And it removes the ability for anyone to erode and destroy that value. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's just a mind-blowing aspect of it and it's hard hard to describe. But I think I think that framing is very useful because you, you sort of get an understanding for why we have paper and electronic money and why gold was money. And then you could see Bitcoin is like the synthesis of the two. And that's a, you know, what's the old, the tongue in cheek way I said this was if gold and the internet had a baby, its name is Bitcoin, basically. Yeah. So pretty much it's teleportable gold yes. that you can keep in your head. You were talking about, again, the Bitcoin ETFs and what this represents. 
um, for the condition in the world, I guess. So maybe like the, the depravity of the fiat system has really amplified demand for Bitcoin. And that's why we're seeing the launch of these ETFs. Like what, what is your read on the current state of fiat world? Well, I think the, for me, the significance of the ETFs is that, um, it's an acknowledgement of Bitcoin as a reserve asset or something you would want to put into your retirement account, your 401k or something like that to preserve your wealth. And I think that's actually the biggest impact from the ETF approvals. It's the acknowledgement from the legacy financial system of, you know, the, the most, uh, the biggest and most powerful financial system on the planet right now, which is still the U.S., that Bitcoin is a legitimate asset class and money. And if you take a step back and you think about it, it's actually quite amazing because Bitcoin is 15 years old now as of this year. And it's already reached this level of uh, recognition in the world. And it has uh, a certain implication about how bad the rest of the legacy financial system is, like how bad fiat money is and everything else that we have to embrace this new thing that's just like 15 years old and acknowledge it and give it a place amongst gold and everything else that's been here for hundreds and thousands of years. So as an example, I got like two things on my desk here. You can pick one. There's a Pokeball and I have a tungsten cube. Which one should we use as an oh, example? I'm going to go with the, the Pokeball. My, my daughter loves Pokemon. <laughs> okay. So let's just say, let's ignore all the stuff that we know about Bitcoin. And we'll say Bitcoin is a Pokeball and it was invented 15 years ago. And now this Pokeball, it has great properties and all that, but this is now in an ETF or in 11 ETFs. Uh -huh. And it is being put into people's retirement accounts. Institutions are buying it. Pension funds are buying it, etc. And if you think about it from this thought exercise perspective, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? That uh -huh. things got so bad that we're going to use this Pokeball and we don't even know who invented this. Uh -huh. And this is now a legitimate form of money. And uh -huh. in the European Union, they don't want you to have a, your own Pokeball. They don't want mm -hmm. self-custody. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, in the U.S., Elizabeth Warren wants to uh, ban Pokeballs because it could destroy the financial system. Right? It's pretty crazy when you look right. at it from that perspective. That's so funny. The, I mean, the the theme that is occurring to me here is like we've and Bitcoiners have been talking about this for a long time. Like, if you keep depreciating the currency, people can't save in money. Right, you have to save in anything else. Basically, again, sure, checking account dollars are fine. Savings account dollars are not fine. Right, you have to put real estate, equities, commodities, anything but the currency that's being counterfeited in your savings account. Because if you save in the dollars that are getting counterfeited, you're getting absolutely destroyed. That that is also pushing people further out along the risk curve. Right, because if you were just saving in hard money, that's a very low risk thing. Once you start pushing people into equities, commodities, et cetera, they're, they're getting pushed further out along the risk curve. So it's the debasement of currency is actually creating this osmotic pressure on investors to push them out of 
again, or hard money would be their, their first choice into riskier assets. And at the very far end of that risk curve is Bitcoin. So it's like the fiat that is destroying itself is also facilitating the growth of Bitcoin in the process. And then, well, okay, so what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin, as you, I like the self-custody analogy, Bitcoin's like a okay ball for your purchasing power, right? You get to self-custody yeah. your purchasing power independent of any bank or central bank for that matter. Um, so yeah, it, it's it, interesting. It's interesting it that- goes it, to the, it goes to the point like governments don't actually create anything. They can only exactly. take things, exactly. right? So they didn't invent the Pokeball, but now they want to know how many Pokeballs you have and where you got them from exactly. and monitor your transaction of Pokeballs because terrorists might use Pokeballs too, right? So it's a it's a really good example of how bad everything is and how much of a failure these legacy financial institutions and uh, managers of money are that we have to resort to using Pokeballs to just yes. stay alive. Yes. And just a testament to general human nature, right? You, the core ethos of Bitcoin, don't trust, verify. Well, verification has been prohibitively difficult with a lot of these institutions historically. And Bitcoin just makes it trivially simple and inexpensive. So it would make sense that a lot of people that just want to preserve purchasing power across time would exit the more risky trust-based model of legacy finance and move into the trust-minimized model of Bitcoin, which is obviously debilitating to the state. So hence them wanting to know all about your Pokeballs and where they're stashed and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of wild when you think about it from this perspective that this 15-year-old thing is now recognized as a serious asset class. And that wouldn't have been possible, I think, if the fiat system functioned, but it doesn't because the temptation to corrupt the money supply is just too great. Yeah. And that has played out time and time again through history, through clipping of coins, uh, you know, debasing coins, mixing in yeah. less valuable metals, to printing money, at printing paper money, to printing money with the click of a button on a computer. The temptation is just irresistible. And yes. Bitcoin is the only tech that seems to be able to resist that. And that's why we have that step change. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. If you, I think the only practical implementation of that notion of power to the people is self custodied hard money. And basically everything prior to Bitcoin was just not practical, right? Like, sure, you can bury gold in your backyard, but hard to move, easy to steal, hard to transact in, et cetera. These, these frictions prevent it from being used that way. But Bitcoin fixes all of those shortcomings. Yeah. So it's a big deal. And that's why the state hates it because it's power to the people, power away from the state, basically. Well, some states are embracing it because they need it too, right? Just right. like institutions, pension funds need it. That's why it's in the ETFs right now, right? Mm -hmm. People seem to have misunderstood that when BlackRock files for an ETF, it's BlackRock wanting it. I mean, maybe they do. There's a degree of that. But the bigger driver is their customers want it. And we're seeing that in mm -hmm. the inflows to these ETFs, like 5 billion plus in seven, eight days, right? That's yep. pretty good considering some estimates of inflows were 10 billion for all of 2024. So the money is flowing in far faster than the GBTC unwind uh -huh. is happening. 
And this is because people want Bitcoin and nation states want Bitcoin too. The, the ones with more foresight are the ones that are trying to implement some form of Bitcoin policy so that uh, they can have Bitcoin in their reserves because uh, it's the new gold. Yeah, that's a good, good point there. I guess that's a good segue to, to talking about nation state adoption for Bitcoin, which is obviously something you guys at Gen 3 focus on. Um, we talked about this last time, but it might be worth revisiting before we got in, get into the specifics of which nation states you are talking to or plan on talking to. Is nation state adoption good or bad? I guess we could say good or bad from a general moral stance and good or bad for Bitcoin in particular. Yeah, so from this angle of looking at it, I would say it is good that nation states have Bitcoin because Bitcoin teaches people about money again. Even if you just are interested in Bitcoin because the number is going up or because it's there in ETF now, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter because somehow you're going to learn about Bitcoin, whether mm-hmm. you like it or not. And you're going to watch the What Is Money show and other mm-hmm. podcasts and read all the books about it mm-hmm. eventually. So the only the only thing that can happen is that you understand money better. And politicians and governments that understand money better will be able to do their job far better. And a good example of this is Javier Millet, the new president of Argentina. He mm-hmm. has a very good understanding of reality. Or maybe he doesn't. And the other people that run the show, like the, the WEF guys, they have a bad understanding of the world. But, you know, socialism has its own problems and collectivism has its own problems and it largely stems from not understanding how things work mm-hmm. and libertarians capitalists have a better understanding because they've had to do something to earn money mm-hmm. maintain money or make money so i think bitcoin supercharges that so if you are into bitcoin if you are needing to deal with bitcoin you will learn about what money is and mm-hmm. what sound money is. And you'll be driven towards things like property rights and not stealing from people through collectivism mm-hmm. because you, you'll have some exposure to the concept of bearer ownership again, which is yes. largely lost. Like we don't even have bearer shares anymore, which yeah. used to be very common. And that lead that, that tends towards overreach from the state, like wanting to know what you've got and why mm-hmm. have control over what you've got. So. The only thing I see happening with nation state adoption is it makes things better because mm-hmm. they learn about Bitcoin and they learn about the need for bearer assets and they learn about the need for property rights. That's a great point. Um, I tweeted this a long time ago and it it's resonates with what you're saying there. So a Ponzi scheme, people often say, critics often say, Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme, right? Okay, what's a Ponzi scheme? Ponzi scheme is a scheme that offers a guaranteed rate of return with little to no risk, and it preys on investor ignorance, right? You have to be basically dumb to get sucked into one of these things, or not dumb, ignorant of how it actually works to get sucked into it. Typically, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? And just pyramiding the thing up. Bitcoin is in actuality, I think, an anti-Ponzi scheme because it guarantees no rate of return. It forces its holders to bear all the risk of holding the asset 
And to your point, it encourages investor education rather than preying on investor ignorance, right? Because once mm-hmm. you understand Bitcoin, well, what is Bitcoin? Well, what is money? What is money? You get a whole show here for 400 plus episodes trying to figure that out. So there's a lot of educational uh, material in that that gold mine. And so Bitcoin, not only is it empowering individuals with more purchasing power or greater control over their purchasing power, but it's also empowering individuals in that it's motivating them to enhance their intellectual powers in a way just by trying to figure out what the hell this thing is. Um, And that, I think, I don't know, that's probably not priced in, the fact that Bitcoiners do get so curious and so educated. Uh, I know when I meet Bitcoiners at these events, everyone's super intelligent, very ethical. Um, They're almost all entrepreneurs. Everyone's building something, right? Um, Just good, smart, motivated people. Like, I don't know how you you can compete with a group like that. Yeah. It's like, I don't see it possible that a Bitcoiner lawmaker or congressman or senator would propose something like a uh, a stimulus package to reduce inflation, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is completely <laughs> counterintuitive to how money works. And yes. if you understand Bitcoin at all, you know that's not possible, even right. at a very surface level. I mean, even your average Joe kind of laughs at that. Like, I see... Yes normal people on Twitter they are not Bitcoiners talk about like, you're going to print money to, uh, to fight inflation. inflation. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I don't know how that happens. Like, how do these people get into power? But I definitely see if they had learned even a little bit about Bitcoin, I don't believe that they could possibly utter those words. Right. That we're going to print money to fix inflation. With a straight face. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know, in Canada they might be able to, but yeah. uh, that's the, the liberal party here. No, that's a great point. Uh, okay, so nation state Bitcoin adoption. Then, what what are you guys doing? What are you up to? What's the update? Where are you? Who are you focusing on? If you can name names, how do you see the general attitude towards Bitcoin shifting at the geopolitical level? Um, fill us in. Yeah. So last year we went to um, Suriname, Colombia and Montenegro had very high level meetings and it's very encouraging. And for us, we, we usually engage from the perspective of Bitcoin as, um, a way for you to generate money through mining and Uh tap into, uh, energy reserves that have not been tapped into, uh, excess energy, flare gas perhaps, and potentially creating new financial instruments on Bitcoin, like Bitcoin bonds. And all of these ideas were very well received in all three countries that we did visit. So our focus for 2024 is to continue on executing on those strategies. So for example, there is a, a flare gas project that we could tackle very soon in Colombia. And the president said, you guys should start working on that immediately. So right. there's just a lot of work for us to do to execute on all the potential opportunities there. But when you present Bitcoin as a solution to some problems and it it can actually solve those problems, I think we can move very quickly to implement some sort of Bitcoin policy. Bitcoin laws and decrees to that extent to acknowledge Bitcoin as money are more challenging and have a longer path to completion. But mining projects, energy projects, where you can show tangible results in six months or less, I think are very powerful and they're what we're going to go for in the near term. And 
I think you mentioned this earlier on the show, but you said Aqua Wallet could potentially be something these nation states white label and leverage to roll out Bitcoin, perhaps as legal tender or some other, um, putting Bitcoin in some type of legal framework inside of their country. Yeah. So if you look at El Salvador as an example, they launched the Chiva wallet and the underlying goal for that was to remove some volatility from Bitcoin, given they they have the Bitcoin law. Later. So with Chivo, they allow you to convert for a zero fees between dollars and Bitcoin. And that that's largely the main function that they, they rushed it to market yeah. because they wanted to let people do that conversion so that yeah. they can receive Bitcoin and get dollars. Um, but another country that wants to do the same, they can do it with Aqua in a non-custodial manner. And mm. we can use things like Tether and Lightning and Bitcoin and achieve the same end goal as the Chivo wallet. So there, there is one country, I can't mention it now, but they are interested in doing exactly that. So Aqua, although intended for grassroots bottom up, it could also be beneficial and top down. And it is better than a complete custodial offering because it is non-custodial. So the people would have their funds still, but Mm. they would get that same user experience as a custodial wallet. Very cool. And that's non-custodial because it's using atomic swaps, right? Yeah. So it's uh, a Bitcoin wallet. You generate a Bitcoin wallet and a liquid wallet with your seed, the same seed. Yeah. And everything that comes into the wallet is stored either on Bitcoin or on liquid. So Tether, it can be converted from the altcoin chains using SideShift into liquid Tether. And then Lightning payments will come in and they'll be converted to liquid Bitcoin and stored in liquid Bitcoin. So there's no need to deal with channels and rebalancing. It's just in and out as rails. So lightning in effect here is just a rail. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Well, Samson, I think I've kept you long enough. Um, it sounds like you guys are continuing to do good work with Bitcoin uh, in, the, in the world at a layer that not many people are working on it at. So thank you for that. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I'm on X or Twitter, uh, at Excelion, and you can find Jan3 at Jan3.com. And yeah, it's been great chatting as always. We should do it again in person sometimes. Yes. Uh, you'll be in Nashville for Bitcoin 24? I'm going to try. Are you going to be in Madeira? I will not be in Madeira, but I will be in Nashville. Okay. We'll, we'll catch up though. I'm one sh- of these. I'm sure we will. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Robert.